Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are in Matthew chapter 9 in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 9. And we are working through a series I've titled Jesus Worldview. Jesus Worldview. You know that everybody has a worldview? Every single person on the planet, whether they realize it or not, has a worldview or a lens in which they interpret the world around them. It's a series of beliefs, opinions, and positions that you have built over time through your family, through the school you went to, uh, through the experiences that you've had, through the conversations you've had with friends and family members and lectures you've listened to, I don't know. But it is a worldview that you have built and it is how you interpret the world around you. Here is a worldview that is very contrary to the world. Uh, something that the Bible holds to, and I'll never forget, uh, this happened just about a month ago. I was in the gym early, and I was talking with uh, some of my Jewish friends, and I'm always, we're always chatting it up, doing a little workout, and then also talking theology sometimes. It's great. He asked me this deep question, and I thought it was interesting. He said, what do you think uh, the Bible's position is on basically the state of mankind? Are all people good or are all people bad? I said, wow, this is deep talk right here in the gym, in the middle of a set, let's go. I said, this is a great question. And uh, to his surprise, I answered him according to what he knew, but what he knew was contrary to the rest of the world. It says, the Bible teaches that all men are bad. Bad to the bone, ba 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 bad <laughs> To the core. You don't have to teach a baby to do bad. You got to teach them to do good. And you have to train them to do what is right for many years. And if you don't, they will not be a good employee. They will not be a good upright citizen. They will not be a good neighbor. They will tear down everything and destroy everything as they do as toddlers. They will never learn to control themselves. They will never learn discipline. And this is a worldview that the world does not hold to. They say, no, everyone is good. Just somewhere along the way, something bad happens and they go south, they go bad. No, no, the Bible teaches that the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? That we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous on the planet. There is no one who does, does good. There is no one who seeks God, Romans 3. That's right. The whole earth... And this is the premise in which why men and women keep hurting and hating each other generation after generation. Born into sin, born thinking wrong, born going after each other. Do you have to teach kids in the sandbox to be generous and to share or to take things? They naturally just walk up and say, mine, and they rip that out of the other kid's hand. And through a hundred repetitions of telling them, no, you need to learn to share and be generous, then they start to learn. I still see adults doing this in this day and age. Mine. Not generous. They don't like to share. You see, worldview shapes the way that you see everything. And the premise of your beliefs, as thou thinks, thou lives. The way that you think is the way that you will end up living. And in all the chaos of the world around us, I concluded we must look at Jesus' worldview. I don't want you to have my worldview. I want you to have Jesus' worldview. So we look at how he thinks, how he sees people, how he deals with matters. And that is what we've been washing our hearts and minds in over and over again in this series titled Jesus' Worldview. The title of the message today as we are working through the book of Matthew is Taste and See That God is Able. Oh, taste and see that God is able. This is sermon number 44 through the book of Matthew. Heard of a story, maybe you heard of this one too. That guy who went up to God, he wanted to make a deal with God. You know that guy? He says, hey Lord, 
as he was pondering, he says, I got a question for you. He thought to himself, you know, God, isn't like a, a penny like um, a million dollars to you? You know, because you own all the money, don't you? So like a, a million dollars is like a penny and a penny is like a million dollars, right? And he says, yeah. Yeah, well, isn't like a, a, in time as well, like a, a second, like a million years to you and a million years like a second? Isn't it all the same? He says, yeah, I'm outside of time. So he said, let me get this straight again. So a penny is like a million dollars to you and a million dollars like a penny and you, you own it all, but you're also outside of time. And God says, yeah, absolutely, it's true. He says, well then, Lord, I want to ask a great request, a great prayer today. Can I have a penny? And the Lord says, yes, just a second. Just a second. Come on. It's a joke. Sorry, delivery was bad. It happens. Is God able? He is fully able. Sometimes we have a hard time believing this and hoping this and trusting this. And it is one thing to know, but it is another thing to experience. I start to declare to you how sweet and tasty honey is. It's one thing for you to hear the details and try to understand it. And it's another thing to taste just one drop. We'll open the mind and the heart into the full discovery of honey. And the same is true with the Lord. The same is true with coming in contact with him. Too often, I think, because we are not being in contact with him, we're learning a lot about him. We are thinking a lot about what's going on. But we are not going to him in prayer. We are not going to him in relationship. We are not seeking him in relationship that we miss the experience of fully knowing him and realizing how able he is. We forget who he is. We see two stories here before us Two different stories where they fully taste and see that God is able. They experience him at the highest degree. In one story, they fully receive. And the next, those standing by miss still what's going on. Completely miss it. We are in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 27 to 31 in our Bibles. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? Let's stand for the reading of God's word to remember whose word we are reading pay honor to him and to remember that it's his word that changes us. My words can never change you. The word of God will change you forever. Literally, just one drink of his word can change a person forever. We need his word in our lives. We need his word in our city, Los Angeles. Verse 27, it says, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said, Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Then they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Verse 32, and as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now, Lord, that these stories would open our eyes and open our ears and open our mouths to speak your truth to the earth around us. Lord, we pray that this text would impact us to believe on you more than ever, that we would taste and see how good you really are. Bless us as we seek you through your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Last week we looked at the best kind of faith. Do you remember? The best kind of faith, it was desperate faith. 
that childlike faith. We believe like that when we're young. But as we get older, we have a hard time believing. We like to calculate things a little bit more. But I do think that the older saints, the mature saints, as they grow older, realize God is everything under control. He's going to take care of us. He's going to carry us through. He's carried me my whole life. He's going to keep on doing so. We saw the ruler from the synagogue, do you remember? Broken because his daughter had died. Desperate for Jesus to come and touch his 12-year-old daughter and raise her from the dead, and he did. We saw the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years say, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. If I can just reach, if I can, if my fingers can just brush by the hem of his garment, I'll dive down and reach out. If I can just, if I can just touch it, I know I'll be healed. What a radical belief. What a desperate belief. What a childlike belief. Only children believe like that. Oh, if he comes and lays hands on me and prays this mighty prayer and then baptizes me, then I know I will be healed. This woman just says, no, no, I just need, just, just let me touch a piece of the fabric and it's done. Jesus marveled. Today we will see the Lord heal the blind and the mute. But instead of just two more miracles, we see Matthew, the writer of this gospel, use this as an opportunity to make some theological points through the reactions of the people. Look at verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out loud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Jesus left the house of the ruler of the synagogue where he'd raised his 12-year-old girl from the dead, and now he's on his way. Two blind men following, are now following Jesus. Now think this through with me. They're blind, so they can't see. They must have heard from someone that he was passing by, for there was no way for them to see him, obviously. Maybe there's commotion in the crowd. There's Yeshua. There's Yeshua. He's coming by. There's the miracle man. And these two guys, they're just sitting there. They start calling out. Calling out to him immediately, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, do you hear us? Have mercy on us. Son of David, do you hear us? Have mercy on us. These two men are crying out to Jesus. And this, of course, would get Jesus' attention, for no one had called him this phrase yet, according to Matthew's gospel. No one had called him son of David. The son of David. David. Yes, David. You say David in the Jewish world in any kind of context, biblically, and who are they thinking of? King David, of course. The greatest king Israel ever, ever saw. For them to cry out the son of David, every single person hearing this knew exactly what they were saying in the Jewish culture. You see, 17 verses in the New Testament describe Jesus as the son of David. But the question arises, how could Jesus be the son of David if David lived approximately a thousand years before Jesus? The answer is that Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of David. This is found in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. Nathan the prophet was speaking to King David. Rewind into the Old Testament. Think about Nathan the prophet speaking to the king on his throne. He says to King David, Nathan says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, God speaking through Nathan, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, David. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Keyword, forever. Nathan says, speaking for God to King David, there is one coming through you. You are going to have a son, and he will have a kingdom that will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the promised Messiah, which means he had to be in the lineage of David. All good Jews know this. All scholars and 
All scribes know this. All Pharisees and Sadducees know this. He had to be of the lineage of David, the son of David. Matthew 1 gives the genealogical proof that Jesus, in his humanity, was a direct descendant of Abraham and David through Joseph, Jesus' legal father. This is Matthew chapter 1. We looked at this genealogy. What's that list of names there for? Why would you see a bunch of names in the Bible all the time? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, that list of names is showing and proving that Jesus was the son or great, 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 great grandson of David and of Abraham. Yes, the bloodline connects all the way. The genealogy in Luke 3 traces Jesus' lineage through his mother Mary. Jesus is a descendant of David by adoption through Joseph and by blood through Mary. As his earthly life, Christ, Jesus, was a descendant of David, Paul points out in Romans chapter 1 verse 3. They asked the son of David, Jesus the Messiah, if he would have mercy on him. Again, back to the picture, back to the story. They're crying out, son of David. Everybody, the crowd's looking at like, what? Messiah's here? Messiah's here. Have mercy on us. They would only ask if they knew he could have mercy on them. They are believing that he is the son of David. They are believing that he can have mercy on them. All of these things are happening prior to the interaction with Jesus. Surely they wanted to be healed of their blindness, but they also had deeper faith in his messiahship. They were basically declaring Jesus as Messiah to everyone around them. They had spiritual insight into who he was and what he had come to do, to bring mercy, to bring healing, but I believe forgiveness of sins as well. For this is what has been pointed out by Matthew in many of the previous miracles. Do you remember when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and he grabbed the scroll and he was doing the reading for that Saturday? He stands up Luke 4 verse 17 and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Here's Jesus. He grabs the scroll. This is before his public ministry. And he's standing there in front of all the people, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to pro proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. And they're sitting there like full mic drop in the synagogue. Wait a minute. We know Isaiah 61. We have been reading it for centuries. Did that kid just say that he is the one that Isaiah was writing about? The one to bring good news? The one to bring healing? The one to bring to set the oppressed free? The one to proclaim freedom for the prisoner? The one to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? The one who is anointed? Jesus. Yes, is the one. These guys had heard and believed Jesus was the Messiah to come and bring good news, freedom, and healing. To cry out for mercy was another acknowledgement and belief in who Jesus was. Only God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David could bring mercy to them. You don't walk up to somebody and say, Son of David, you're calling him Messiah, and then you don't ask them for mercy unless you know they are capable. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the text says, take a look, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. 
and their eyes were opened. The Lord noticed these two blind men, but he didn't stop for them on the way to the house. Though he heard them, he kept on walking into the house. Many believe this was Peter's house that they walked into. And the blind men followed with persistence. They kept saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Persistence. Have mercy on us, son of David. Persistence. Have mercy on us, son of David. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And the door might be opened. Without asking for healing from Jesus, he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, what? Lord. They called him Lord. They believed who he was and that he was able. Point number one, if you're taking notes, do you believe God is able? I want to ask you this today. Do you believe he is able to make the blind see? Do you believe he's able to make your blind eyes see? Do you believe he's able to grant you mercy and forgiveness of sins? As we believe certain things enough, we actually make moves in those beliefs. These blind men pursued Jesus, though they couldn't see where they were going. They can't see. And they're walking by faith. They're going to go into the They're just going to keep going. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Where did Yeshua go? Where is he? He's over there. They keep asking. They keep seeking. They keep knocking until they get there. These blind men pursued Jesus so they couldn't see where they were going because they believed with all their heart that he alone could heal them. They really believed it. And so they're willing to do whatever it took to get near him. Listen. When you believe it's going to rain, you grab an umbrella, don't you? You put on a jacket, huh? When you believe that, you actually take action. When you believe the stock is going to crash, you sell, don't you? Yeah, yes. Serge was an investment banker, so that's why he said that. I reveal his secrets. But it's true. When we believe things, we actually make moves. When we, you believe the plane is fully capable to fly you, you get on board and you fly across the country because you believe, even though it's very bizarre, you get on this piece of metal and it somehow moves you in the sky thousands of miles. But you believe. Do you believe that God is able to meet you in your situation? Seriously, do you really believe he's able? Do you know it or do you believe it? Do you know it or are you tasting of it? Is it enough to grab the umbrella? Is it enough to sell the stock? Is it enough to get on board? Do you believe God is able to meet you in your situation, not somebody else's? Only you know how you believe. Only you know where your faith is at. It's between you and God. We can, we can fool the people around us in, into making them think we believe, but we know what's really going on inside of our own hearts. We know where our belief is. Ephesians 3.20, be encouraged. Now to him who is able... Paul writes, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Look at the stacking of these words. Paul, are you trying to make a point here? I think so. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. You could just put, now to him who is able to do abundantly. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly. That's plenty. No, no, let's compound. Now to one who is able to do far more abundantly. You think he's trying to say something? To do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. 
To, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. One thing that still trips me out, even as we sit here today, is when we came to LA trying to look for a place to meet, we literally had for eight months, every single place saying no to us. I just kept trying to find places and calling places. Every single place said no to us. We started like in Santa Monica, because who doesn't know about Santa Monica in uh, LA? Everybody does, right? It's like where the, you know, all the tourists are out. Then Venice Beach, then we were, found ourselves in downtown LA. We're in the arts district, like looking at these brick buildings. And then we find ourselves over in Silver Lake and trying to get this old Presbyterian church. And and I'm like, I, looking for eight months, I'm like so fed up. I didn't even know what Laurel Canyon and Ventura Boulevard was. I didn't know that the Ventura Boulevard is basically the longest street of restaurants like in the world probably, 25 miles. I didn't know that all of the rock hits of, of the 70s and 80s are, written, are basically right here in Laurel Canyon. The Studio City is really an epicenter when, when everyone gets tired of living on the other side of the hill, they move over here and live over here. It's hilarious. I had no idea where we were going and I, I just, somebody said, well, you should check out Sherman Oak Studio City. So again, I'm just stumbling into all of this and every single place had said no. Nobody said like, yes, you can meet here, but it's like 50 grand a month. Nobody even said yes. They just all kept saying no, 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 no churches, no, we're not allowing a church in this building. And there is one place in this entire city that we talked to that said yes, only one, and it was this place, and it just so happens to be, when I tell people we're right on the corner of Ventura Boulevard and Laurel Canyon, like, wait, what? You're where? How'd you get in there? I don't know. I have no idea. I just made one phone call. And also, it was like, hey, how's it going? Um, yeah, I'm like nervous. You know, Hey, uh, so we're wondering, um, do you guys like rent out your gym? Would you let us use the school there? Uh, yeah, sure. What do you want to do? I'm like, well, um, it's, uh, it's for a, a church. Yeah, sure, no problem. You can meet here. Yeah, here's the price. Does that work for you? Like, that is a perfect price. Thank you. <laughs> it was like the easiest thing I ever did. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. It's really incredible beyond what we can ask and even think. We always got to think it through, huh? We always got to know. And the Lord says, I'm working far beyond your thinking my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. You know how high that is? 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able, Paul says again to the church in Corinth, to make all grace abound to you. All of it. The whole package. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I'm going to, God saying, I will abound all grace to you so that you will have all that you need in all times. You realize what that's saying? It's like literally God giving you his ATM card to his bank account. You're going to have all that you need. Lord, how's it going to work? Don't worry. You're going to have all that you need. God is able. Do you believe God is able in your situation? The least we can do is ask the Lord. You have not because you ask not many times. You just don't even ask the Lord. We just think, I can't ask God for that. I'm not going to bring it to him. Why not? My little Eden, my little Shep, I'm sure when he's talking as well, Eden, she's going to come and ask dad for anything. Even if she knows dad can have another piece of candy, even if she knows the answer is probably no, she asks. And in doing so, she, it just might be the right time in which I looked at her and say, yes, <laughs> you can. How do you know? 
unless you ask. Go to your father. These blind men, just they were persistent. They showed up at the right time. The least we can do is ask, have mercy on me, son of David. I believe you are able. Do you believe I am able to do this, Jesus said. And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. The Lord alone can give sight to the blind with a simple touch. He says, according to your faith, be it done. What does this mean? He means according to your belief that I am able, it will be done. These kinds of stories trouble me at times, allow me to explain. According to your faith that you believe that I am able, it will be done. There are many times in the Bible when God seems to meet people according to their amount of faith. Now we know it is God alone who can place that faith in them and in us. Where does faith come from after all? Does it not come from God? Do humans manufacture faith? Do they put it in the oven and bake it and all of a sudden it comes out? No, faith is a spiritual substance. It is a spiritual thing that God owns all of. Faith is the currency of heaven. Without faith it is impossible to please God. And to believe on God, how did Moses have the faith to believe on God greater than all of the Israelites around him? Well, after all, did he not have the experience with God that no other Israelite had? He saw God face to face. And the Lord instilled great faith in him by coming to him and choosing him. And Moses actually said, I can't do it. He says, you got the wrong guy. And God's like, do you know who I am? Moses is like, yeah, but I can't speak. I got a stuttering problem. I'm stuttering Stanley, okay? I can't do this. God said, did I not make the mouth and the tongue? You are the guy. He's like, no, no, please let my brother Aaron speak for me. He speaks way better. God says, fine. Let Aaron speak, but you will hold the rod. You will be the one. And Moses' faith was built and encouraged by God. And he believed for incredible things. It does seem that God will take a person as far as a person believes. And this really does correspond with reality most of the time. I'm not saying you can believe that you can fly and jump off a cliff and God will meet you. That's foolish. But I am saying that as you believe God is able in things that align with his word, align with his word, I believe that I can go murder 10 people and get away, for, get away with it and not end up in jail. You're a fool. For God has said clearly not to be doing that. I believe that God can cause me to forgive those 10 people that I'm bitter at. I believe. Lord, would you do that in me? Could we believe according to his will, according to his commands, according to his word? It seems many times that the Lord meets them, meets people as far as they want to go, as far as they will believe according to his word, he will take us. I'm reminded of 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. It's when Elisha was ill. And King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. It's found in verse 14 of Kings 13. Just listen what happens. The king says to Elisha the prophet, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel, he cried. And Elisha told him, Get a bow and some arrows. And the king did what he was told. He goes and grabs a bow and arrows, the bag of arrows. And Elisha told him, he said, hey, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his own hands on the king's hands. Again, the king was in fear of being attacked. He was asking for wisdom from the prophet of God on what to do. Then Elisha commanded, he says, open that eastern window. And he opened it up and he said, shoot. So he shot an arrow, and Elijah proclaimed, This is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram. For you will completely conquer the Aramites at Aphek. Then he said, 
to the king, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. But the man of God was angry with him. He said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only three times. Elijah challenged the king to see where his faith was at and how much was already sitting in his heart. He said, grab the arrows and beat the ground with these arrows. And however many times, he actually didn't tell him how many times he beat it, that that would actually reveal what was going on inside. But that was the test. It seems that this moment of belief was revealed by how passionate, how fervent, and how much this king believed already in his heart. And it was revealed by how many times he took arrows out and hit the ground. Think about this. If he would have been believing with all this heart, I'm going to absolutely crush this army because God is with me. And in fervency and in passion, in focus and in discipline, he takes out each arrow and he slams it into the ground. Boom, boom, boom. And he just keeps pounding until there's no more arrows in the bag, revealing that his heart is to go all the way until the very end. And then he nonchalantly takes out the arrows and shoots three into the ground revealing what's already going inside of him. And I see this in people. You can almost already see where they're at in what's going on. I see this in reality. You can almost see how much someone believes something. If you ask the saints of old who have died for their faith over the centuries, if they believe Jesus was Lord, you can see it in their eyes. Even more so in the moment they would be told, deny Jesus or die. They have emptied their bag of arrows. They say, let's go. You're going to burn me to death? Let's go. You're going to come at me and try to get me to deny my Lord? I'm sorry. I have been prepared for this for a long time. My heart is full of faith. And I will keep going forward no matter what. This was the test from Elijah. And I, again, I see this in reality. Oftentimes, what is already sitting in your heart, however much faith is sitting, however much belief is already in your heart, is what will actually take place in the future. You watch people, you watch their eyes, you watch their hearts doubt them and crush them and overtake them because the faith wavers in the Lord of whether or not he is able. I see it in church plans. Whether or not he is able to continue to keep the church going to whether or not he is able to continue to provide to which people just give up and lay down and turn over. It's interesting that these types of things bleed into lots of things in life. In marriage, how far do you believe it can go? How, how far do you believe that you can forgive that person, that God has enabled you to keep on forgiving, keep on loving, keep on showing grace? You see it in business. How far do you believe that God can continue to carry you and continue to minister through you, continue to help you and strengthen you to keep moving forward, to keep chipping away? You see this in all kinds of things in life. It is very interesting that Jesus says to these two blind men, according to your faith, let it be done to you, as if their hearts were already full of faith and all they had to do was see Jesus. When they saw him, they believed even more so with all their heart. We are here. The son of David is here. We've been praying for this. We've been hoping for this. We've been dreaming about this. And it's at the door. Surely when we talk to him and we say, have mercy on a son of David, he will see us. He will know us and he will heal us. And that's exactly what happens. You look at Hezekiah in the Old Testament, the great king. He did not strategize more with his army as to how to take down the 180,000 men that were at the door of his gates. You know what he did? He went to God. It says in the text that he lays the decree, the papers, before the feet of the Lord. 
in prayer, he gets down and he cries out to God, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. You alone are able to take care of all of this. There's 180,000 men out there that are going to crush this castle. He begs God to show up full of faith. And in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes and strikes down every single one of these men in that army. And Hezekiah wakes up the next morning and just sees dead men. God showed up, one angel took care of the whole thing, and it was over. And Hezekiah was saved. Where does this kind of faith come from? I do not see this kind of faith. I do not see this kind of faith in America. I don't see it in the churches. I love being laid back and easy going. I love having a good time. But man, we are way too comfortable. We don't have to believe like this anymore. And so, as you believe, let it be done. We have lost our way. We are missing this kind of belief. Church, I hope that your hearts cry today as mine is, Lord, stir in me. Ignite that fire once again in me. John Blankard said when Abraham went out, he was not sure of his destination, but he was sure of his company. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew who was with him. George Mueller said, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. How do we get the church to believe again? To not with the mind, but with the heart, to wholly believe on Christ, to believe in desperate faith. To believe that as we're sitting on the bus stop next to some random person, we actually believe that the message of gospel could transform their heart and mind forever. And they'd be resurrected through a simple conversation and interaction. Where is that? Well, I can't share that. No, 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 I'll, I'll get a warning at work. We, we've completely lost the spiritual mindset. Jesus touches these guys and they were saved. Their eyes were open forever. And they saw for the first time possibly ever. They took a step of faith like no other. No other. And the first thing they see with their eyes is what? Jesus. If these guys have never seen the first thing they ever see with their own eyes, the first thing is the Lord. The first thing they see is the best thing they'll ever see. Wouldn't it be amazing to be healed and see an orange for the first time? You're blind, you can see the texture. Wow, that, that's what it is. That's what it looks like. The sunset that people have been telling you about, it's amazing, you know. The way the water hits, you know, the light and the colors, and it's, it's just incredible. You get to see it. Maybe the first time you see your own hands. I've been touching them for so long, and I have these pictures of what I think hands look like, but now I can see the details, the color. The first thing they see is the Lord. They saw the Lord Jesus can't wait for the first time to get to see the Lord. It's like we are blinded now until heaven when we see the Lord clearly. We follow a man we have never seen. We study about someone we have never beheld by faith. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes this in verse 12. We now see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything perf with perfect clarity. All that I know now is impartial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. Oh, I long for that day. We see everything clearly. Verse 30, sadly, these guys believe. They take great steps of faith. Some awesome magic happens. 
Then look at verse 30, the second half, as Jesus warned them sternly, sternly. He literally says to them, okay, guys, see that no one knows about this, okay? But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Abrupt and sad, the Lord would say to some, go tell your story to the town that all that God has done for you to others. He would say, don't say anything, which would be pretty wild if you think about it. People would still believe these men were blind, but they could see everything going on. Think about it. You knew the two blind guys and they're like sitting there and they're healed, but they're like not allowed to tell anybody that they were healed so they can actually see you. Like, hey, man, how's it going? You know, like, you throw the apple in the air or whatever, and the guy's like, you know, like. Can you see? Um, uh, um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Trying not to make eye contact, you know? Like, <laughs> but why would Jesus even say that? That's what you have to ask the question. Jesus didn't want his fame to spread quicker than his message. He didn't want his miracles to spread faster than the message. Remember when he was feeding the thousands? The crowds grew. But then when he spoke the message, the crowds shrank. And we know the crowds shrank down to just 12 men in the end and everybody else wanted to kill him. They wanted to murder him for what he said. Blasphemy, put him on the cross, that criminal. So the miracles bring the crowds. The, the, they want to see a magic trick. But the message thins the crowd out. The truth is what convicts the heart and changes the mind. And we know the people in that day as well hated that message. That's why they killed him. Jesus was the nicest guy on the planet. Did you know that? He's the nicest guy to ever walk the earth. He was fully loving, fully kind, fully gentle, and then spoke the, the brutal truth. And people hated him enough to kill him for it. That's wild. These guys, as their first act of Christians, disobey the Lord. And a quick note on this, allow me to get a little mystical, if that's okay. Oftentimes, people in great need, broken and crushed by their situation, cry out to the Lord in salvation. And once he saves them, and they can see they then go on their way not believing like they once did. They lose their fire. It's like, Lord, save me. I'm at the bottom. Save me. Help me. I'm going to drown. I'm going to die in the situation I'm in. The Lord reaches down. He saves them and he pulls them out and gets them in a good place. And he's like, hey, you, are we going on a walk today? Lord, I got, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. I don't need you like I did. I don't need you right now. Self-righteousness is the scariest thing we could ever do to ourselves to think that we don't need Jesus today as much as we did yesterday. The church of Ephesus, in the book of Revelation, Jesus said this to them, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I kind of feel like this almost applies to the church today. All that the church is facing and going through in America Listen to how it would apply right now, today. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Thank you for hanging in there, Jesus. Thank you for, for not growing weary. You're enduring this season. But then he says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you first had. You've abandoned the love that you first had with me. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you first did. We tell people, you know, the church has lost its fire. Where's the passion? Well, what should I do? Get back first. Remember where you were at. When were you the most on fire for the Lord? Number two, repent. Turn back to the Lord in that way with all of your heart. Then number three, start doing the things you once did. What were you doing then when you were most on fire for the Lord? Get back to doing those things. These guys got their miracle and then just walked in disobedience. It happens a lot. Look at verse 32. 
Really just one final point as we close this final picture. As they were going on their way, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to them. So Jesus leaves the house of Peter. They're on their way. And a demon-possessed, or some of your text says oppressed man, was brought to Jesus. And this guy was mute. He wasn't able to talk. It's interesting that being mute can be attached to demon possession, huh? We would never conclude this in a million years with our human psychology. Right? You bring them to a psychologist, you lock them up in the loony bin, this person can't speak. There's something wrong. But what do we conclude? You know, we, we would never conclude. Well, we know, we know why. Doctors, did you guys discuss? Did you guys think it through? Ah, yes, everyone agrees that it's demon possession. Never. In a million years, we would make up all kinds of other reasons for these symptoms. But Jesus says he is mute because he is demon-possessed. See, this is a problem with human psychology, which we are entering into more than ever before in our society. Listen, while there are helpful statistics about humans that have been done through psychology, the premise is wrong. Humans are trying to discover what is wrong with humans. And we label and diagnose people with things that are made up by humans many times. Then that person goes on their way saying they have that mental illness the rest of their life. The greatest error in psychology is they do not take into account the spiritual side of a human as to why they are depressed. And they, are not, they, they do not start with the foundation of God. The foundation of God is needed that all humans are sinful and broken and need a relationship with God in order to be healed. If you miss this entire part of the equation, what do you do? Just give more pills. Let's just do this. We don't even focus on the spiritual whatsoever. We just start looking at the physical and the problems going on inside of the brain. Well, again, it can be helpful to understand general statistics about humans through studying them. Psychology and science can't answer why humans do what they do. They do a good job at answering what we do, for sure. Well, they're doing this, and their body's doing this, and this is what's happening, and this. Why? Why? Why is it happening? Why do we do these deep, dark things? The Bible gives the clear answer. Sin. The Word of God corresponds with reality. People have been killing and hating and hurting each other and depressed and overwhelmed because of sin for thousands of years. Yes, there are physical problems that tie into that and mental problems that tie into that, but when you miss the premise, you miss the whole thing. Jesus concludes, the dude's demon-possessed. If this mute went to a psychologist, doctor, or a scientist, they would all conclude a physical problem, the obvious What's happening? There must be a chemical imbalance in his brain. He must have had trauma as a child. Jesus concludes he's demon-possessed, and I will heal him. That's why he's mute. Think about this. If you take away the spiritual, how many thousands of patients come through these doors and they misdiagnose over and over and over again because they do not take into account spiritual. The world cannot do this because they don't understand the word of God and they don't understand the way humans truly are. Are we really created by God? Do we really have a spiritual, a mental, and, and, and a heart side to us, a soul side to us? Are we really broken down into these ways? Or is it just pure physiological? Just anatomy. Let's just break down what's going on, and then we will pre prescribe a Band-Aid to try to cover it up. Can I take one step further? I gotta say it, because it is so rampant in our society, and I'm so sad about it. Because I see people getting messed up. John MacArthur, here in town, has written extensively about this. He says, the church's right to counsel from the Bible has been reconfirmed in court's rulings of recent times, yet in many instances, the church has surrendered that right and responsibility because of the professionalism of the counseling ministry among Christians. This is tragic because the behavioral sciences are not, as is commonly believed, scientific. 
Neither have they proven effect in changing the human heart. How do you change the human heart? Christian psychology, with its claim of secret knowledge about dealing with people, has made deep inroads in the church, but it is no more than a duplication of its secular counterpart with scripture references occasionally brought in. A reliance on Christ, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, almighty God, and God's sufficient word as dispensed by spiritually gifted Christians to one another is the church's only solution in meeting spiritual needs of its people. I will counsel alongside a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Maybe you have physical problems that you really need dealt with. Let the doctor figure those things out. He can understand what's going on with you physically and how to fix some of those things. But man, to completely miss the spiritual is to miss everything. After all, if we can restore the body and keep it healthy over and over, but that person keeps on killing people, what does it matter? Are they broken forever? Yes, until Christ steps in. Every human being is. And we can't forget this. It says, when the demon had been cast out by Jesus, the mute man spoke. He starts speaking like pure, like British English. That's a bad joke. But you know, he starts speaking so clearly in Aramaic or Hebrew, whatever he is speaking. Like, what? We thought he was deaf and dumb. We thought he couldn't speak. We took him to the 5150, you know, we had him locked up. We did the whole thing and it just didn't work. Gave him all the meds and Jesus says, he's demon possessed. We gotta pray for him. The crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this, I love the word that Matthew uses, seen in Israel. But the Pharisees who were watching by said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Oh, Pharisees. I love how Matthew plays on the context. Matthew plays on the context of being blind and then shows that the Pharisees are blind and can't see what is right in front of them. Those two men were physically blind and saw Jesus for the first time. These religious, self-righteous think they don't need God and have figured out their own works to heaven are completely blind and actually think that me healing a man who was deaf and dumb was doing the work of Satan. So backwards and upside down, this is bizarre and how many reason away the obvious truth of Jesus right in front of them. It's not enough to know Jesus is Lord. You must make him Lord and Savior over your life. It's not enough to know. We must experience, we must make him in full belief Lord and Savior. That's why I titled the message, Oh Taste and See that God is Able. Psalm 34, 8 as we close. Oh Taste and See that the Lord is Good. Please, church, please. You want to be healed? Go to, your, go to God. You know. You already know. You've been empowered with the knowledge. Now go to him yourself. Who tastes and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. And we, Lord, we lower ourselves. We think we know We think we have it figured out. Lord, we are here to declare again today that we need you. We desire to taste and see that you are good, not just know about it. We desire to cling to you. Lord, we confess now with our mouth, with our heart, with our mind that you are able. Lord, we believe that you are able in our situation. We believe that you are able to stir such great faith in us to believe beyond what we could ever think or even ask because you're working, because you're showing up, because you're there, because we're in partnership with you, because you are our father and you take care of your kids. Lord, we humbly ask for forgiveness 
All the places we choose not to believe that you are Lord and Savior. All the places we choose not to believe that you are working. And I pray that you would stir in us a new faith. A faith for your glory that causes us to love you with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor, people around us. Oh God, give us wisdom. Give us faith far beyond what we think we are capable. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Bring us back to our first love in real relationship with you. I pray for a new passion in our church. I pray for new light in our eyes. I pray for hearts yielded to you. Let us lead our families for your glory. Let us lead those around us for your glory. Use us, God. We are waiting to be used by you. Forgive us for not standing in the gap in this city. Use us, God. We choose to seek you now. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.